The thought that we've been going through is why we worship. Why do we worship? Why do we do this every Sunday morning? And I want to say to some of you today, what we're going to talk about today may be the most needed thought or theme about worship that you will have this day. And it may not be that today is the day you'll need it. It may be that a week from now or two weeks from now you'll need it. But someday soon, and I would tell you, I just want to caution you, this goes for every week, but I want to say this to you as a word of warning and as a word of exhortation. The enemy of your soul, you know we have an enemy that would love to destroy your soul, right? The enemy of your soul would love for you to miss this. He would love for you to ignore it, to be distracted instead of tuned in, to dismiss this, to feel far away from it, to forget about it when you walk out the doors. So don't. Let God speak to your heart. Because someone here or someone who's listening to this is stuck in life and can't seem to figure a way out of being stuck. If you're in a dark place or a bitter place or a place of hurt or a place of sinfulness, a place that is something you need to break free from and you haven't seemed to be able to break free, think there is really a message of hope for you this day. So we're going to talk about why we worship. And as I do that, I think about um, some, some, some of the things in my own experience as I grow older. Uh, back in high school, I went to a church that had, we had a youth group and, and all the normal youth group things, but we had this other thing. And I'm, some others who were part of the church would probably remember better than I do, but uh, I, I don't know exactly how this came to be, but we had a thing called Boys Fellowship. And it met once a month on like a Friday night. And I don't remember almost anything that we talked about at Boys Fellowship. I don't, I don't remember much about it, but I remember one thing from Boys Fellowship. It was a game that we played called Mat Ball. Because we took wrestling mats and we hung them on the concrete block walls of this gymnasium with concrete poured floor. And the mats were our goals. And you took a ball and... You had to hit the ball on the mat. The only rules of the game, there were only two, were you scored when you hit the ball on the mat and you could only take three steps with the ball. Literally, that was the only rules that we had. So that sounds like a civilized game, right? It was not a civilized game. It was, for every time that I can remember, we played at Boys Fellowship Mat Ball, it was pandemonium. It was you know, Lord of the Flies. It was, you know, survival of the fittest. It was crazy. And, and so we basically played in this concrete gymnasium, tackle football for an hour. And it, there was no like mercy shown or asked for. We bounced off of each other, tackled one another. I remember one of the bigger guys having three or four guys jump on him because he couldn't decide what to do with the ball and take him to the floor and rip the ball out of him and a knee to the face. And just, it was crazy what we did. So when we got done playing the game, we were a little bit sore and a lot smelly, you know? And then the next day we got up and we went about our business because we were in high school. You know what I mean? Then about five or six years later, maybe seven or eight years later, we got married and we were going to this church and church, the men said, we are going to uh, Saturday morning, we're going to go down to Glassboro High School and we're going to play tackle football. And I thought, wow, that sounds like fun. So I got up, went down to the, the Glassboro High School fields and we started playing tackle football. Now, mind you, I had not done anything athletic in like five years, but 
you know, I was 23, whatever it was. And I'm just like, here we go. You know, and I'm running into people and guys bigger than me and plowing over little guys and just having a blast for like three hours. The next day I couldn't move. <laughs> Literally, like day after, like two or three days of I'm just a whiny mess. Men, you, you feel come. Women, you're like, whatever, it's your own fault. But you guys, you know what I'm saying, right? I put it out there on the battlefield and, and I was suffering for the, the, the cause that we had. But I started to recognize that I didn't recover quite the same way I had recovered years before that. And as time goes by, I find myself recognizing that recovery is not quite as simple or as fast. I'm a little worn out from this year. This, this, this feels like a long year to me so far. I know we're only six months in, but it feels like a long year to me so far. And I was thinking on Friday, <clears throat> I don't know that I'm doing more right now than I've done before in my life, and that's why you know, I feel so worn out. I just think that I just don't have the same capacity I used to have. And it just takes a little bit more time to bounce back from stuff. Anybody else notice this? This phenomenon... Or is it just a peculiar symptom or disease that I have? Time goes on. And as time goes on, you become more and more aware of your need to recover. Usually what we think to recover is rest and time. That's what we think. If I'm, if I'm hurting, if I've worn myself out, I need to rest and I need to take some time. And that's often very true. But here's the question I want to ask you today. And I want you to think about this with me. What does it take to recover, not in your body, but in the deepest part of you? What does it take to recover in your soul? Sometimes it takes more or different than what we think. What has to happen so that the empty place or places or the broken pieces can be put back together? We think we know and we try things out, but are we doing what it takes not to recover physically, but to recover spiritually? Life beats us up. And so recovery is a frequent need, isn't it? Some of you are right now feeling the need to see God bring life back into your soul. Life throws a lot at you. Sometimes recovery is for a good cause. If you were to go in the hospital and have an operation that maybe saved your life or restored your health, you would be recovering from the operation, which is a good thing, but you would still be recovering from good things, right? Because we as people are limited. We have certain capacity, and when it's worn out, we are worn out. We are wrung out. But I would say for me, and I I don't speak for you, but I would guess some of you are like this. Most of the time, my recovery need comes because of choices that I've made and actions that I've taken. The reason that my soul needs to recover is because of what I have done. You may not realize it, but one of the reasons that we worship, and we've been talking about why we worship, one of the reasons that we worship is to recover in this life. And that has significant implications for every one of us. We recover through worship. And what we're going to learn today, what this is going to teach us, what we find out over time is that worship is not what we do when we've gotten past our problems, not when we've cleaned up our life. Worship is 
the way we do those things. If you're a believer, worship is not about how I find my way to being clean and clear and then I can go worship. Worship is the very process for us as believers by which we are healed and recovered. How about that? That is an incredibly powerful truth. Over and over in Scripture, we find people who find themselves in a mess, oftentimes of their own making, sometimes dumped into their lives, and the response that brings healing and hope and recovery to them is worship. Think about it. The Apostle Thomas, oh, I'm not going to believe. We call him Doubting Thomas. I don't think Jesus is alive. I think you're making this up. I don't think you guys are right. He sees Jesus next week, and what does he do? My Lord. My God, he worships. We see uh, David when he falls into sin. How does he recover? Psalm 51, he worships. Job, at the end of his struggles, at the end of all that, that was poured out on his life and all of his loss and all of his friends, how does he recover? At the end of the book of Job is chapters of worship. Saul, who would later call Paul, all of the, the devastation he wrought in the church when he's transformed from, from a non-believer to a believer, how does he recover? Through worship. And over and over in Scripture, we see this theme and yet we miss it. And we think, if we're honest, most of us by default think this, I will worship when I've recovered. But we worship to recover. Isn't it ironic Isn't it ironic that the very healing and recovery we need is often in the worship that we don't feel like doing? Isn't that crazy? That we would worship even when we don't feel like it because by faith we know that's what it takes. And that's how God has provided it. And I hear it so often and you feel it so often and probably hear it as well. Well, I can't go to church right now. I'm not right. I'm not okay. I'm not good. Do you see what you just did? I don't know if we always get it, but, but understand this because the enemy will twist this, but this is the truth. You opt out of the very pathway God has given for you to come back because you don't feel like it, because you feel like a mess, because you feel destroyed, because you feel wrung out. The more we resist the provision of God in worship, the more we need it. And because we need it more and more and we refuse the answer, the more we downward spiral. And so we start to get a picture of life and accept a picture of life that is less. We set our expectations lower. We give in to numb. We give in to isolated. We just give up. And so that's why we're going to go to the book of Jonah here because we're going to look at one example of recovering in worship in the story of the man named Jonah. Now, as we read Jonah, this is a little bit of a bigger picture thing about this book, kind of Bible study-ish here. One of the questions that people often ask is, is Jonah a true story or not? Well, I wasn't there. I don't have firsthand information to give you, but I'll tell you this. This is how I decide that fact. Jesus thought Jonah was a real guy. He thought this story was a real story. So I'm going to take his word for it. Can we do that this morning? We'll just take Jesus' word for the fact that Jonah is a real story. We could get into all kinds of dark pathways on that, but I'm just going to say, since Jesus said Jonah's a real guy, I'm going to believe Jonah's a real guy. 
And I want you to follow along with the story because the point is that Jonah tells the story about himself as he writes. And the story that he writes is how he was deeply off track and needed to recover from a huge hole that he had dug for himself. If you were Jonah, now we kind of maybe know the story, but if you were Jonah, you probably would feel like this is too far gone. This is beyond hope. This is un recoverable. What I have done and where I find myself is beyond the reach of any good, any hope, any recovery. And so if you are broken or wounded and in need of recovery, if life has beaten you down and crushed you, if you think that you've disqualified yourself from a life with meaning or purpose or joy, Jonah's story is for you today. Worshiping the creator who, think about this, the God who created us chose to be our redeemer as well. Worshiping him is a reminder that we can recover from anything that's smaller than he is. We can recover from anything that's less than his love, which is everything. Because our God is great. So, start with me in Jonah chapter 1. We're just going to read the setup in the first three verses quickly. I'll give you a little bit of background on this. It says this, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. All right, so Jonah is a prophet. That's his job. That's his calling. That's what he's made for do. Jonah is someone who speaks for God. He is God's messenger. And so in the story, as we begin, Jonah gets a message from God. God says, I want you to deliver this message to the city of Nineveh, and I want you to call them to repent. And Jonah says, I don't want to do that. I, I am not interested in delivering your message. We'll find out later in the, in the passage in the book uh, that he didn't think the Ninevites deserved God's mercy as though any of us deserve God's mercy. The point of mercy is you don't deserve it. That's the point of mercy, right? But Jonah was like, I don't want them to have it. I don't like them and I don't want them to be offered hope. So Jonah goes the other direction. I want to show you, if you've never seen this before, I want to show you the map of where Jonah decided to go as opposed to where God asked him to go. So God said, I want you to go to Nineveh. All the way on the right hand of your screen, up at the top of the red pathway there, is the city of Nineveh. In the middle, there's the city of Joppa, which is the port city that Jonah went to. And all the way over on this side, the left, is the city of Tarshish. Jonah has said, why do you, when God says, I want you to go to Nineveh, why do you, leave it up for me, Bob, why do you head the other direction? Why do you go five, six times further than God asked you to go? Why do you go exactly the opposite direction? Because you said, God, I am running from you and I'm going to make it impossible for you to do what you said you're going to do. I have no notice. That whole journey there versus that journey there. And by the way, if you've ever looked at the story and thought about it before, 
When Jonah is in the, the rest of the story, when Jonah is out, out at sea and in the belly of the whale and the whale spits him up, do you ever think that God like delivered him to Nineveh and he just got up and he walked into the city? Do you see how far away he is from Nineveh when he gets out of the whale? He's got a couple weeks of walking ahead of him to think about what happened. He's not just like, oh, here I am at Nineveh. God brings him back almost to the same spot where he asked him in the first place to go and says, okay, redo. (laughs) And so Jonah heads out to run away from God. He runs as far as he can go in the opposite direction because God has a plan and Jonah says, no. He decides that he's going to make it impossible for God to do what God said he was going to do. And so what happens? Keep going with me in Jonah chapter 1. Verse 4, down through the end of the chapter, says this, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went up to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call to your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea calmed, grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord had provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah decides he's going to run from God. God decides that he's not. I don't know if you've ever said, "Uh, God, I'll take it from here. I'll do it my way. I'll I'll be working on my plan. Thank you. Uh, The patience thing was nice, but I'm kind of done with it. I don't want any more patience. I don't want any more waiting. I don't want any more direction that seems to be going. I think I know where this is all headed and I'm not in. I want something different. I don't like what you're doing. I don't like the way this is going. And so God, I will take it from here. If you have, what I know is there's fallout to that. Fallout in your life that is unpleasant, that is misery. And every single time you find yourself in a place of recovery, it comes back to this one root. The root is the fact that God is in charge and we aren't. When I find myself in need of recovery, it comes always back to this one theme. God's in charge, I'm not. 
And instead of trusting that or falling in line with that or surrendering or submitting to that, I have rebelled against that and moved a different direction. I've tried to create a plan for my life outside of God's work and God's will. So I, my desire to, create, to take control from God creates problems, creates fallouts. Probably not the same as Jonah's, but you could say metaphorically, He sees a storm, and it is a storm that doesn't seem to have an end. It is a storm that they can't deal with. It is a storm that threatens to to wreck them, to destroy them. It is danger. It is life and death for them because of this storm. I will warn you right now, and I will warn myself, no matter what you think about your plans and your strength and your ability and your cleverness, you will never outmaneuver God. You might be sitting here hiding today, trying to pretend to be some kind of spiritual whatever, and you think you got everybody fooled. You have not fooled God one bit. You cannot run from God, turn your back on God, and just live on without consequence. What we get fooled into thinking is that if I hide it from people, I'll be all right. But you've forgotten that people don't matter. Because you can't hide it from God. And so that's where we need to deal with it. Jonah decides to run. and God says, you're not going to run from me. Because what I say is right is actually right. Even when you want something different, even when you don't understand, even when you decide to go your own way, God's way is still the right way. And there's wreckage every time from turning away from the Lord. So they did what we all do. They said, well, what can we do to survive this storm? Here's the storm raging. And so what did they do? They started throwing stuff away that they would have never sacrificed. They would have never thought to sacrifice the cargo on their ship. But because of the storm, they're starting to lose things that previously were precious to them. Does this reflect anybody's experience in walking away from God? They start praying prayers that they had no idea or no desire to pray before. But in the storm, suddenly it's, oh, pray to your gods. Maybe they will help us. So what can we do? What can we do for this storm? How can we get out of this storm? How can we survive this storm? Here they are. They are in danger. They have been put in danger. And now Jonah says to them, what you're going to have to do is throw me overboard. He asks them to do something that they clearly don't want to do because they don't want to live with the guilt of killing someone so that they could be safe. All of this because Jonah decided to run from God. And as far as they know, at the end of chapter 1, they don't know about a great fish. As far as they know, they are safe. But Jonah died at their hands, so they could live. When we run from God, it makes a mess, doesn't it? And it puts us in a place where we desperately need to recover. So this hopeless place, I don't know if you've ever been in a place this hopeless, but if you can imagine, you are in a great fish's belly, under the sea, no idea where you are, no control of your life, There's not a more hopeless place that has ever been, besides maybe death, that I can imagine. How about you? That's as bad as it gets, right? That's as far as it goes. So any situation that you've been in your life that feels like there's no coming back from this, this is too far gone, I refer you to Jonah. And yet, Jonah comes back from this. 
Jonah comes back from this. How? Well, that's chapter 2. So here's what we got. Let's look at what Jonah does that brings him back. In a manner of speaking, brings him back from the dead. So much so, as a manner of speaking, that Jesus actually uses that story to predict his own death and resurrection. Because it's like coming back from the dead. And so I want to read what Jonah does at this ultimate moment of helpless and hopeless. What he does is worship. He worships. It says this, From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the deep in the realm of the dead I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the sea, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me and deep surrounded me. Seaweed, it was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountain I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Jonah comes back from this. And how does he come back from this? Worship. Worship is the pathway back from wherever you've lost your way. It is the pathway out of wherever you've gotten stuck. It is the invitation to freedom and healing that you need over and over again. It is not for the perfect people. Worship is not for the perfect. Worship is as we see here, is for the broken who need healing, the messes who need cleansing, and the mistake makers who need redemption. Anybody fall into that category? It is not when I've cleaned up, then I can worship. It is worship itself that drives me back to the place of redemption. It is not just for those who feel it, for those who are on a spiritual high. It is for those who are in need of recovery. And so, let me just ask this. Maybe, maybe you didn't get this as we read this, but why is worship the thing that does that? How does worship help us recover? How does worship do that? How, I mean, it seems like singing some songs can't possibly have that kind of effect, right? Coming together in church and singing a few songs. How does that get you out of that dark place back to Jonah's from the, the hopelessness of you know, the belly of a great fish in the bottom of the sea to another chance to be used by God to see a great city saved. How how do you get from there to there in worship? Is it just a magic, like, secret knock, open sesame, you know, the secret path? What is it about worship that does that? And so as I looked at this prayer, and as you look at this prayer with me, let's see a couple things that happens here. Because what happens is, it puts your heart and soul back in the place it needed to be at the beginning. Worship is the way that we make the choice to go back to things that we should have been doing before, but we set aside. So first thing I see is that his worship 
brings him to a place of humility. You cannot worship proud. And by the way, if you are all concerned with who's around you as you worship, you are trying to worship in pride and self-focus. So I know this. You're like, well, I've worshipped in bad times before, but it's never helped me. Well, let me ask you. Have you ever just flat out been so desperate that you didn't care what anybody think? That you just like, God, I am here to put my life in your hands. I am desperate for you. I am so much weaker than I acted like I am. I am so much more lost on my own than I ever was with you. I was wrong to think that I would guide my own way. I am absolutely convinced you have to guide me. He says, I called to the Lord. I called for help. There, there are these cries out to God that recognize a position. Even the, I will lift my eyes and look to your holy temple again, is I've taken my eyes off of where my help comes from. So I'm going to look back there because I have made the mistake. I am the one who is wrong. For many of us, we miss this because when we come to worship, we're just about what it feels like. Oh, I like that song. Oh, that's upbeat. Oh, I feel better. But did you feel worse? Like humility is about stopping the focus of you. Humility is not about feeling bad. It's not about beating yourself up. Humility is about you not being the point of what you're doing. And humility is a pathway to faith, is a pathway to the power of God. When I stop trying to make it what I think it should be, that allows God in by my submission and my surrender and my repentance to do exactly what needed to be done in the first place. And so in worship, we turn from the idea of saving ourselves In worship, we turn from the idea of saving ourselves. Humility. We humble ourselves before God. When we become children of God, that's where we start, isn't it? If you are saved, if you have been born again, don't you start at, I recognize I can't save myself. I'm not okay, and I can't do anything about it. There is a necessity of humility in order for me to turn from my sin, to turn from my own control and surrender my life and put my life in the hands of Almighty God. There's humility that's required. And that is the attitude and the aspect that worship brings that we need that allows God to heal, restore, and bring recovery to our soul. Second thing, I notice that in worship, he turns his eyes back to the Lord. I remembered you, Lord. I lifted up my eyes to you. He calls out to God and his sights have been on, I will not help those people. But in the belly of the fish, in his need for recovery, when he decides to worship, he stops looking at those people and he starts looking back at God. As a matter of fact, in worship, he stops looking at just his circumstances and he starts to look at the one that he believes is above and beyond his circumstances. When you need recovery, most likely your eyes are on the circumstances and situations of this life. When you are worn out and beat up and discouraged, you are looking at the problems that you're facing, the stresses that you have, the weights that are on you. You are weary from all of that stuff. But worship takes your eyes off those problems and puts it onto the answer, right? That is why worship brings recovery. Third thing I notice here, 
Worship restores hope. He looks to the day that he is sure is coming, a day when God rescues him and gives him another chance. He says, I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you, not in the belly of the fish, you won't, right? What's he talking about? I am confident that this is not beyond you. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. What's he saying? God, it's too big for me. It's not too big for you. God, you are a saving God. You are a redeeming God. And I know that when I put myself in your hands, that you will rescue me, that you will set me free. I have hope in you. If you walk in hopeless, if you walk into a Sunday without even showing up here, hopeless, the pathway back, the pathway of recovery comes from worship. When I recognize that God is bigger than anything that I face, he is more powerful than anything that threatens to overcome me. He has more provision for my life than I could ever make for my own life. His plan is better than my plan. And so I come in humility. I lift my eyes up to him. And as I see him for who he is, my hope is restored. This is how worship causes us to recover. And I say this to you today because I feel like the church of Jesus Christ takes worship very flippantly. We take it or leave it. It's fine when I get there. It's fine when the songs are nice. It's fine when I'm there early enough. But if I get there four or five, the real point is I made it to church. You know? But worship is this vital gift that God has given to us to help us recover. Can you think of a more powerful way to fill up your life with hope and with purpose when you feel like it's all been drained out of you than getting together with your brothers and sisters and lifting up our great God, worshiping and bowing before Him, giving praise to His great name. It is the way that we recover. And sometimes you don't feel it, but it can still be the pathway to recovery. Because it's a step of faith. It's a step in by faith. The majority of the story so far has been a downward spiral. As a matter of fact, all those verses that I just read, all of it except the last verse was pre-redemption. The whole story is about he's downward spiraling and then Jonah responds in worship and the actual salvation comes in just a few words at the end of chapter two because we don't need a lot of instruction about when God rescues you. It's like, that's awesome. But what we need is the eyes to see and the ears to hear what Jonah learned the hard way. That God is God and I am not. And worship is how God brings recovery when I forget that. Worship is how God offers recovery to the most desperate among us. I pray that it is something that you will not take lightly or for granted. It is why you need to be here every week you can. It is why we call this a service. I never ever thought of that. We call this a service. Sunday morning service. What time are your services? What are we serving? Hope. Life. Through the name of Jesus the Savior, the Redeemer, the Rescuer. You need this. Especially when you don't want this. You need this. And I'm saying it to you because the enemy will come at you with, hey, it's summer. Let's go do some fun things. And please go do some fun things in summer. But don't write off what is necessary for the health of your soul so that you can recover from the rest of the year. 
because you've set aside what recovers the most important part of you, the eternal soul that God has given you. Over the past two months, we've looked at why we worship. Next Sunday, we're going to worship all morning. And I hope that you're here. We worship to do battle because life is a war. The biggest war I have is against me wanting to be in charge. We worship to give God glory because God is great. We worship to respond. We worship to give thanks. We worship to surrender. We worship to fix our hope, to put down an anchor of hope into the the, the solid ground of, of our God. When the storms of life rage around us and we don't feel like we're going to be able to hold on. And we worship because probably every single week we need the recovery that worship will bring to our soul. And I pray that as a church, we will engage this week after week after week. We worship a great God who does great things in our lives. Let's close with a word of prayer. I'll invite you to stand. We'll be dismissed this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we do come to worship you. Lift our eyes beyond the things that seem so heavy and so hard, so beyond us, so hopeless, that make us feel empty. Lift our eyes to the one who created all of this, to the one who rules above all of it. Lift our eyes to our help. Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Father, show up for your people as we lift our eyes to you. We know that you will because that's who you are. But Father, we want, we want that faith, that hope to be alive in us. Help us as we walk this journey. Teach us to worship you with a heart that is sincere, that is true, that is focused. Help us, Father, to worship you. And so, Father, pour out your spirit on your people as we go from this place. Let us live in response to what we have learned this day, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.